Connect with your potential customers wherever they are. Effective uses Comcast viewership data insights to combine advanced targeting capabilities with premium TV and streaming content so you can deliver the best ad experiences to your audience no matter how they watch. Visit EFFECTV.com. Welcome to the Grit Daily Startup. I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk, and this is a podcast about what goes on behind the scenes at startups. The good, the bad, and the gritty. Let's dive in. Uh, so good morning. This is Karim Nurani at, uh, a- a- again, still at South by Southwest at the Grit Daily House. Uh, another exciting day. Today, actually, we're going to have wonderful weather. It's been sort of warm, sort of cold, breezy. And as you know, Friday was a total mess, uh, but we're here. And I'm glad that Ben was able to make time for us today. Ben Futuronsky at Cobalt Capital, an investor at Cobalt Capital. And today's topic that we're going to cover is e-commerce and crypto. Exciting. That's going to be an exciting topic topic. And I want to get into that a little bit more. And I'm going to have you introduce yourself, who you are, what you do. But before we do that, you know, I've got to put in a plug for a link to link to is a um, financial marketplace platform that acquires pre IPO companies on the secondary market, and then allows investors to join us on this journey towards having democratized access to uh, pre-IPO companies. We've been successful over the last two years. I think we found a marketplace now for us that works really well. And in under two years, we've generated $100 million worth of investments here, and we continue to grow. So we're very excited about that. And this, as you know, is a learning um, podcast. We always want to see what the trends are, what's happening uh, for the future, so we can identify companies uh, that are opportunistic for us to include in our portfolio. So Ben, this is going to be really exciting. I think there is some challenges in the environment of crypto and e-commerce. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about you. Tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do what you do. Absolutely. Uh, First and foremost, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My first time in Austin, my first time at South by, and my first time at the Great Daily House. Um, So thank you for having me. Uh, The background is um, currently working at Cobalt Capital. Cobalt is a late venture, early growth firm. We invest in technology oriented startups with a consumer lens um, that focus on the consumer experience, actually. So we are formerly known as Evolution Media. Evolution Media was essentially a spin out of TPG Growth and in partnership with creative arts agencies. So legacy history of investing in media, entertainment, and digital consumer experiences. Um, We manage over a billion of AUM, and we're really excited by some of the portfolio companies that we get to work with. Um, Based out of LA, my previous history um, was actually working at a cannabis venture capital firm, um, did some time in consulting, and also had a startup of my own in the travel tech space. That's, that's That's a very rich background, uh, moving forward. So as you look at and investigate opportunities uh, with crypto and e-commerce, tell us what you're seeing today, some of the challenges uh, and what the future looks like. And when I talk about future, I don't want to go out five years. That's too mm-hmm. far in what's happening today, maybe in the next two years. Sure. So that's a great question. How we think about things at Cobalt and myself is we want to understand how people get on-ramped and onboarded into the crypto uh, stratosphere. So for example, how does one individual uh, convert their fiat to crypto, 
go on an exchange or marketplace, purchase a cryptocurrency or a NFT per se. Um, how does that process happen? So we call it enablement technologies. Uh, and we found companies like MoonPay, which has a fiat to crypto conversion. They essentially do payment processing, working with some of the largest marketplaces, and they help bridge that adoption. Um, so we think about enablement technologies on ramp, um, on the payment side, on education side, on talent. How do people actually join the industry? And if we look at you know the whole industry as a whole, um, there's only 21 million people using a MetaMask wallet. That's 0.7 percent of Facebook's monthly active users of over close to three billion. So we're still very early, and we're very excited by adoption. Um, now I know you mentioned kind of the the risks we see. Well. I think fraud and security is a major risk that we're seeing today. I mean, in 2021, there was $1.3 billion in decentralized finance hacks take place. uh, And that's an astonishing number. And we think um, there should be much more emphasis placed into security, um, you know, KYC and AML protection. uh, And that needs to happen for the industry to succeed. Yes, KYC, AML, that is a huge concern. I know a lot of people are working on that uh, to be able to identify and streamline that process. But that's just a process. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, there are companies developing in that sphere that are, are getting really good at it. Mm-hmm. But the fraud uh, is something that we should talk about a little bit more in terms of hack. Mm-hmm. What do you see as major security concerns in fraud? Uh, why... What are the technologies that have to be developed to, to minimize or right. mitigate that? Now, fraud happens everywhere, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we strip it back into two different examples? The first is I sign up in a product, I link my account, and I want to deposit funds. Um, and so typically, the process to deposit funds, you need to actually underwrite that individual has sufficient funds in their bank account. That process is actually has a lag at the moment because of ACH, which doesn't really exist today. And so to actually underwrite uh, the risk scoring and monitoring of an individual needs to happen for sufficient funds to take place and for companies to actually underwrite that they could provide those funds in the meantime. Now, the second place is that what if actual fraud occurs? How do you know if there's malicious attempts? How do you know if everything is like coming from a John Doe account? No one really knows that. So to actually track um, a user's IP, where they're actually signing up from, what kind of device they're doing, all of these traits need to be identified. And at the current moment, there's not many companies in the space that are tackling this. Um, one that we're super excited about that we think are doing an amazing job is called Sardine. Sardine provides risk compliance, uh, fraud monitoring. They actually underwrite an individual and actually score them based on their fraud profile. And so they're doing an incredible job to provide that monitoring for many different companies. We've actually recently saw Stripe, uh, one of the largest incumbents in fintech, announced this week that they're going to go also into the space. So, I mean, those are two great examples of companies that are tackling it. And I think that needs to happen for the end-to-end experience to be much better. Let me touch on two points that you raised that that are important. And I'll do that in sequence from what you just said. Um, Digital identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is now, given what the community is seeing overall globally, a need for protection of personal identities. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the topic that's in vogue today is um, sovereign identity, a digital sovereign identity. And what is it that what is, what data should I be sharing Mm -hmm. to make my wallet function 
without giving up too much of myself? How do you see that playing out? It's such a great question. And I, and I come from both sides. I mean, crypto is decentralized. Everything is on chain, uh, which means all the data technically that we sign up with is also going to be on chain. Uh, we could go and see everything that you have from uh, your MetaMask and your wallet and what NFTs you own. Uh, but there's a problem. And the problem is that that's just standalone data. We don't know when you purchased that NFT, was it airdropped to you? Was it handed to you? Were you early? Did you purchase it from someone else? We don't know any of that information. When you go from one wallet on one blockchain to another wallet in the blockchain, you can't take over that information. When you sign up to another place, you can't really take it as well. You sign up with your MetaMask or your Solana wallet, but that doesn't really uh, translate that well. And so one of the things we're excited about is actually using decentralized identifiers, verifiable credentials, where you could actually go deeper and understand what data has been involved. Uh, there's a company called Disco with Evan McMullen, um, you know, big fan of her and what she's doing. And she constantly talks about carrying a data backpack with you everywhere you go. And she's tackling the space with an amazing team that actually could provide more expressive traits on your sovereign identity, on where you are, who you are, and actually taking that not only from Web3, but going back and forth of the two parallels. So I think that's a fantastic point you bring and one that we're definitely excited about. Yeah, it's it's causing a lot of concern, especially when you see a huge migration to Web 3.0 and 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 um, privacy and individual privacy. And then you've got the whole other issue that arises from NFTs and smart contracts, whereby, you know, it's the economy of self, right? How much data do I want to share? Who's monetizing on that? And why aren't I, as an individual... Uh, benefiting from my uh -huh. data. Uh, so that's something that, have you seen that and what the situation is with folks um, thinking about this? Absolutely. I think we, we think about credentials and earning uh, and completing quests. There's so many platforms that provide bounties where you could go and actually complete a bounty and earn money. And all that information needs to be stored in one place. Like I went on rabbit hole and completed a quest or I did layer three and I helped fill out a bounty. Um, all that information I personally think needs to be on chain and needs to be interoperable between different blockchains. So completely agree with your point. Um, today, myself, I haven't come across many platforms that actually provide all that information together. So um, data is essential to the future of this industry and monetizing and controlling my own data is also essential to how long I'm going to spend in this industry and how safe do I feel uh, giving up most of my data. So. Let's go back to another point that we raised a little bit earlier. If we are looking at e-commerce and crypto, crypto being the payment, e-commerce is what you want to function on yeah. and, and to purchase things. As far as I understand it today, I think you mentioned that, first of all, as a user, I have to deposit funds into a wallet. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say I'm using a fiat currency that's going to be converted to a crypto in some fashion. And then I may want to use exchange between cryptos and then use a crypto in e-commerce. Mm -hmm. The challenge with this today, in my mind, is there's a huge fluctuation in values of crypto. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to an e-commerce site and I want to purchase something, ordinarily, I'm going to Amazon, I want to buy uh, a a big screen TV, I know it's $400. I know what that is worth to me. It's $400. Now, in between the transference of one crypto from fiat to one crypto to the other crypto, 
with the fluctuations in the valuation of crypto, I'm not sure what I end up paying. So how Absolutely. do we, how do we think about that? You, you, you hit on a very important point. And the only answer to that is once you're actually converting fiat to crypto, you're seeing in real time what it would look like. And when you actually click the convert button, um, you're not going to want to wait 30 minutes. What if the price of crypto goes down uh, and your actual buying value is much lower? And so you need instantaneous ability to purchase. And that's only done with solutions that actually could underwrite and provide that ACH settlement in real time. That's why platforms like MoonPay provide that instantaneous settlement. Uh, platforms like Sardine provide the actual risk underwriting capabilities. I think in the future, you as a user do not want to wait to be able to convert and have to wait until your funds deposit and then go back and forth. Everything needs to be in real time. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing um, such an emphasis on, on platforms like those emerge today. So when you mentioned the word ACH, that, that runs shivers down my, my, my spine because ACH is such an old technology, mm -hmm. uh, very similar to SWIFT. There's always been challenges with uh, time to settlement, when right. I'm doing something, when the, the, um, the commerce site receives the funds, you know, there's fluctuations and, and transaction time that's involved with that. Uh, we've talked about generally consumer interaction with fiat to crypto to purchase. Mm -hmm. But if we broaden the scope and say, okay, let's talk about large size corporations that are using crypto to make mm -hmm. uh, purchases. And we're now we're talking about millions of dollars. Right. Um, how do we reg, how do we create efficiencies in that market where we're talking about huge volumes of transactions? Yeah. I think the North star here is to have someone like Amazon be able to uh, accept payments through Bitcoin. Um, and to get there, we, we need to ensure that the security measures are in place, that you could underwrite the probability of a risk uh, purchasing with Bitcoin. Is this verifiable? Do they actually have the sufficient funds? Um, and to underwrite all that needs data. Data needs to exist and you need to understand where are users coming from, where they've received their money. Um, and I think that's all being done interoperability. Um, and so it's very interesting. You bring up a good point. I mean, in the in the short term, I imagine many of these social media platforms being able to deposit and purchase things with Bitcoin as well. Um, you know, maybe the creators on Instagram or Twitter um, or TikTok are going to be able to accept payments with Bitcoin. So I think that is much more in the near term than seeing someone like an Amazon, uh, maybe a Shopify, given they're they're very uh, technology friendly. And so it's a good question. And there needs to be a lot in underwriting risk, underwriting data, and understanding where the user is coming from for that to exist, in my opinion, at least. No, this is an important question, because I think what we're seeing today is the very early stages of using crypto to actually make day to day purchases, mm -hmm. uh, you know, by individuals who are who are uh, early adopters and users of this infrastructure. The challenge really becomes, I think, when we look at large e-commerce sites uh, mm -hmm. making huge transactions who are purchasing large volumes of product from uh, manufacturers, mm -hmm. for example, across, across the world. Uh, and if we look at the current environment of controlled or centralized finance, there is a certain security and safety and comfort level because mm -hmm. these things are underwritten. Your funds are underwritten, whether it's the FDIC or, or the relationships that you have with the bank. 
it's challenging for me to understand how this changes quickly without going back to a centralized financial infrastructure. I mean, we've got the whole idea of stable coins now and CBDCs who are talking about uh, digital, um, digital currency. But if we limit it to CBDCs and, and centralized organizations, we know there's a certain amount of security and safety. Right. Um, so how do you see that playing out? Because there's two conflicting ideas. Here. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, last Wednesday, we saw Biden put out the executive order um, that there's a pathway going towards something like this and that they need to realize the importance of uh, cryptocurrency and a path forward for the U.S. Um, the question is, um, to underwrite and have that security, I think the government needs to step in as well. But at the same time, all that information will be held by the government. So it's like a centralized authority in a decentralized land uh, and kind of runs opposite of what, you know, cryptocurrency um, is embodied to be. And so it's a, it's a very interesting question. I think, you know, going back to your point on Amazon and big retail accepting cryptocurrency, we're actually starting to see that there's certain platforms, like for example, Visa partnered with FoldApp, which is essentially a debit card, which you purchase on platforms like Amazon and Starbucks, and you earn Bitcoin as rewards. And so we're getting one step closer to kind of big tech and traditional tech adopting this. And I think, you know, regulation needs to exist here um, in some capacity and sort of like a partnership for all of this to work together. At least that's my opinion. Um, We saw the uh, currency in Russia completely tank and people started depositing into stable coins and cryptocurrency. Um, and I think that's kind of the sign of people going towards something more centralized uh, in their own way. So there are challenges. We see a, a, mm. a, a, a um, friction here. And going back to Biden's executive order, I read that it was very, very um, non-descriptive, but it only said, let's identify a solution. Right. Where do you think this is going to net out and how long will it take? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. I, I don't think I have an answer to this. I think we're going to see hopefully a lot of sides come close to something in the next few weeks as a thought. I don't think anything will get signed or, go implement, or get implemented for a while. Um, it's something that I don't, I don't really have an idea on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I put you on the spot yeah. there a little bit. Yeah. Um, even though you said you don't want to talk about regulations. <laughs> it happens. In terms of looking um, what you do at Cobalt, uh, you have a lot of inbound um, companies talking right. about some solutions, talking about the rails that they're using, whether it's on-chain, off-chain, look at the infrastructure, whether it's Solana, Ether, right. Avalanche, Bitcoin. I know now Bitcoin starts that's trying, uh, trying to develop some side rails uh, apart from just this, the value of currency there. What do you see some of the challenges with the existing rails that we have and how that needs to change? It's a good question. Um, and so I would probably put it back to how much transactions are taking place on Ethereum today. I think 78% uh, of most transactions have taken place on Ethereum. I think that's a lot uh, on kind of one platform. I think we're also we've been seeing, you know, the composability of going to different platforms and the layer twos enabling that. And I think, you know, gas prices have been very high for Ethereum. And, you know, we go back to something you mentioned, like the adoption uh, of cryptocurrencies for the mass users. And I think, you know, if people have to pay certain gas fees just to purchase cryptocurrency, that's going to be a big blocker. And so I think 
it's very interesting how different payment rails, uh, different layer ones are popping up that are offering different platforms, different marketplaces are being built specifically on top of different blockchains. I think it's incredible to watch. Um, At Cobalt, we are taking an indexing approach. So we like to play something that actually provides more broad exposure to a certain category. And so if we get super excited about, um, you know, horizontal platform, something like a MoonPay, um, something like a Figment, that's enabling us to provide more exposure into a category we believe in. So I think we're less prone to take a single risk but at the same time, we're always open to different types of technologies. And like, as you mentioned, the amount of inbound we've been receiving, um, especially in Web3 and crypto after doing a few deals here has been really, really impressive. So the other question that's been raised uh, a number of times is this, you know, I use Visa, MasterCard, American Express. All I know is that mm-hmm. I swipe a card, something happens in the back end and, uh, and, and I get whatever I want uh, from it. Um, all of us here speaking here today at South by Southwest and when we speak to venture firms, uh, and let's go back to your question, uh, your, your comments about adoption by world mm-hmm. populations uh, of using crypto on rails. It's because we're paying attention to it, right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we're paying attention to it because these are the companies we want to try and invest in because there's right. an uplift, there's a valuation and premium that goes up. And these are the, what, the reasons we look at it. But generally, if we look at the global environment, perhaps 85% of the population don't care about the rail, the, the, the protocols, the KYC, AMLs. Mm-hmm. They want things to happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we talk about uh, the adoption, we look at the adoption curve. It's still small compared to the global population. Uh, who perhaps don't have access to the internet or limited or spotty or spotty internet, and they don't have recognition of like Visa or Mastercard. Where do you see the the friction points in mass adoption mm-hmm. of these infrastructures? Yeah. So to your point, here are some numbers. I think thirteen percent of Americans have purchased cryptocurrency today. Three percent of the global population have purchased cryptocurrency. Um, the average price of an NFT purchase on OpenSea last year was $3,200. Those are staggering numbers for the average American or the average person worldwide to go and purchase an NFT if prices are like that. The average hold period for an NFT on OpenSea last year was 48 days compared with 160 the year before. So people are trying to buy and sell at the moment, make a quick buck, which is kind of widening the gap. Um, of someone who could afford NFTs, who could, someone who could afford cryptocurrency. The average person will not care about anything we just talked about on this podcast. What they will care about is just a very seamless user experience to go purchase cryptocurrency and know where it is in a wallet and know that they have the security and risk measures uh, incentivized for them. And I think, you know, it all comes down to a seamless user experience, which is what we are so excited about at Cobalt. I think it comes down to actually the trust that a platform brings. And, you know, I, I hate to continue going back on these two companies, but, you know, what MoonPay provides for such an easy checkout experience and such an easy fiat to crypto conversion is really why it's been why it's been such an impressive company for so many uh, people in the industry, why they've scaled to $2 billion in GMV transaction in the last year. Um, and something Sardine and, you know, what Stripe is doing is so important for the longevity of the industry. So, you know, taking my investor hat back on, it's like, we need to invest in these technologies 
um, not only for me as Cobalt, but for other venture firms for the longevity of this industry to exist. I mean, we're at 1.7 trillion market cap. Um, that market cap needs to continue to go up. And I think it's impressive to see where we came year over year, but these technologies will continue to enable the end-to-end customer journey. Um, just as you and I go on and want to purchase something, just as the average American will want to as well. And so these need to exist. So the other question, and and this is oftentimes uh, overlooked, I think, uh, when we speak about payment rails, con- uh, commerce with crypto, KYC, AML, we're omitting a huge population of the underbanked, unbanked um, that exists, South America, Africa, Asia, who, who, who in reality, because they don't have a bank account or a credit card, do not exist. They're, they're unrecognizable or unrecognized. So how does the these infrastructures assist them to become players in this place, in this marketplace? Yeah, most of these technologies are easy to embed API tools. And there's emerging markets with already payment processors there um, that help manage the processing, the merchants, uh, and the underwrite. Um, and I think the partnerships through an easy to, the easy-to-use API, as I mentioned, it's kind of the go-forward path here. Um, transparently, I don't spend so much time in emerging markets. Most of my time is focused on North America uh, and Europe and Israel as well. But um, in these markets, to your point, these individuals don't have credit cards. They don't have, uh, maybe they don't have bank accounts. So there needs to exist out of app store payment processing options. Um, and I think we're going to start to see companies like MoonPay, Wire, Sardine start to expand into emerging markets and actually go partner with those payment processors there and those actual local processors there to actually enable that workflow to, to actually happen. So I am familiar with how the venture company yeah. uh, works and, and what you look as in investments. And sometimes um, it's always a me too. If Andreessen does an investment, everybody else says, hey, we should do what they're doing. Um, if Sequoia um, does an investment, other venture companies jump on board and right. say, hey, these are, the, these are the industries that we should be paying attention to. In your experience and what you're seeing at, talk to us a little bit about outliers of technologies and developments that are happening outside the Me Too, We Too environment. Yeah, so many thoughts on this. I, I personally know funds that only index the, the top tier investors uh, and they'll just strictly follow on. I know funds that index Y Combinator. Um, and I also actually met someone yesterday who exclusively said that they don't invest in Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. And so the, the thought process is every different fund will have their own strategy that works for them. Um, and you know, to, to take an outlier bet on a contrarian uh, when everyone else is passing, no one wants to do it, that is where the real venture returns will come into play. I think you know, two things. One, if you're investing pre-product mit, fit, you're investing pre-mo, which means the economics of that are you have much more upside there. If you're investing post-product market fit, you're going to have to pay up because everyone else also already knows that this company is doing incredibly well. So there's more information symmetry there. Um, and I think there's more playbook modeling we could, you could do than the early stage where it's like you're really betting on a category defining business that is going to go and create something new. Um, and that's super impressive to me to do that. 
I think to your question, I think many different firms have different strategies. Um, we have our own strategy that's been working for us where, you know, we're not driven by who's in the round. We're really driven by the foundations of the business, the team, the market, uh, and we're happy to go against the the bet there. And so I think it's very fascinating to see how many different strategies exist today and how many could actually work in this environment. Which brings up an interesting point. As you evaluate the founders or creators of business, what is the persona, talent, skill, motivation, and drive mm -hmm. that you're looking for in these founders? Uh, there's, I don't think there's one single answer. It's a, it's a combination of everything. I mean, you look at a team, you, you want to see some level of pedigree that they've had before, whether they've have deep experience in this domain and have expertise, whether or not they know something that no one else does, whether or not they worked 10 years in payment processing and went to go start a payment processing company. Um, there's so many different character traits and things we evaluate. Um, it's impressive to learn, you know, can they attract talent? You know, the people outside of them make up the composition of the team as well. So how easy is it to attract top talent? Um, can they go and sell the product to customers? You know, are they committed to this full time? There's so many different questions here. Um, and it's probably the most the, the most fun that I have as part of the job is to, to meet the founders, to, to hear their vision and understand why they're doing what they're doing. So let's look a little bit into the impact of COVID over the last two, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, I know you focus on a lot of North American com companies or Europe or Israel. Has the strategy of investments and the acquisition of clients changed during the, pande uh, the pandemic era? Yes. And I think that goes into, you know, one specific example to start it off, talent and hiring talent. Before, you would have to live in San Francisco to work for a San Francisco company. You'd have to live in Tel Aviv to work for an Israeli company. Uh, today, you could live in San Francisco and work for an Israeli company and vice versa. So the ability to attract talent, that pool, has expanded dramatically. At the same time, the level of competition to hire has also dramatically expanded. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing the war for talent like we've never seen before. Um, it's actually an employees and prospective um, individuals market, in my opinion. I don't think it's a company's market anymore because they command the price that they want. They command where they want to work, the flexibility. And I think, you know, going forward, you really need a hybrid model um, to be flexible with different employees. I mean, I can't speak for everyone. Different firms operate differently. But I think, you know, the employee today wants that hybrid ability to either go into the office some days or work remote some days where two years ago, I don't think that really existed other than for the big tech company. <laughs> so uh, before we end and we're coming to that time, I'm going to ask you to put your futurist hat on a little bit mm -hmm. uh, outside of your regular day job, trying to identify potential companies to work with and invest in. Look two years with a broad mind and tell me what does the future look like? <laughs> wow, that's a great question. I think that question can be answered different ways. One, I think we'll see many of the traits we discovered the last few years continue to prolong the hybrid workforce, the hybrid environment. I think companies will have to go remote first. I think they're going to have much less operating expenses in-house, in, in which is probably going to you know, impact the bottom line better. At the same time, I worry that the productivity may go down if people are just able to work remote. So that's from like a work remote category. I think we're going to see a larger emphasis play around climate change 
um, and investing in technologies that alleviate climate change and actually reduce the carbon footprint that we have. A lot of private equity firms are committing to go net zero uh, to 2050. I know yes, two years, but this is kind of the broader vision. So climate change is a, is a massive one. And I think the adoption of cryptocurrency will continue to expand. Um, if we think we're, you know, it seems like the only thing ever people talk about today is Web3 and crypto. This industry, I don't know, like two years ago, South, South by, no one was, I don't think anyone was talking about it. No. There's probably like a panel with like 20 people in a room and everyone knew each other. Uh, today we're seeing specific conferences pop up, specific events, um, you know, days dedicated to the space. I think it will continue to uh, massively, massively grow. Uh, users will continue to adopt it. And I think, you know, we're getting closer to that question you answered. You asked about, you know, will the government get involved? How will all this play out? And I think, you know, adoption in two years will be much higher than it is today. Great. So um, as we close out, Ben, what would you like to say to the audience? Why should they contact you? Who should be contacting you? Should they be contacting you? <laughs> um, these, these are your closing uh, words. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope people want to contact me. But no, I think, you know, from a, from a technology investing perspective, uh, I'm founder first. We're founder first. We want to see companies succeed and scale. I love helping people with talent introductions, with customer introductions. We work with companies from uh, every single stage that we invest into. Uh, and we're really, really there for founders first and foremost. And so uh, working with myself and the people at Cobalt um, expect to hear from us a lot uh, in terms of what we could do for you. Uh, and hopefully we could do it together. There you have it. Ben, investor at Cobalt Capital. Look him up. He's on LinkedIn. Uh, get uh, you. It, I'll spell your, his last name for you so you don't uh, lose it. It's F-U-T-O-R-I-A-N-S-K-Y. So Ben Sky, uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Grit Daily Startup. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. This podcast is brought to you by GritDaily.com, the premier startup news hub. More information at GritDaily.com. Once again, I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk. Until next time, friends. Connect with your potential customers wherever they are. Effective uses Comcast viewership data insights to combine advanced targeting capabilities with premium TV and streaming content so you can deliver the best ad experiences to your audience no matter how they watch. Visit EFFECTV.com.